0: You're listening to Episode 7 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring stories of the Green Lantern Guy Gardner and the Golden Age Sandman. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm Ryan Daly, and I've got three wonderful guests joining me on this episode. A little bit later, I'll be reunited with Siskoid, who listeners will remember from Episode 5. But before that, two brand new guests are going to help me cover the origin of Green Lantern Guy Gardner. First, from the Lantern cast, is Chad Bokelman. How are you, Chad?
1: I'm all right, Ryan. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm happy to have you. Thank you very much for showing up. And next, from just one of the guys a Green Lantern Podcast, Sean Engel. How are you doing, Sean?
2: I'm doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me on, man.
0: Thank you very much. I'm a fan of both of your shows. I've been listening to them for a couple months, doing great stuff. I like these. I'm a Green Lantern fan. I like the property. I like the way you guys break these comics down and analyze them. So I was so thrilled that you both
2: agreed to be on the show. Well, it's, it's like I said, it's great to be here. It's great to talk about Green Lantern and it's going to be fun talking about this this portion of the comic. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Like I said, I'm happy to have you on the show and I imagine there might be some Green Lantern fans checking out this podcast for the first time and if that's the case, you know, for n- new listeners might not be familiar with the Secret Origins comic. So I like to give a little overview at the beginning of every episode. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling or retelling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. Unfortunately, it's all downhill after this issue, so the rest of the series is just awful. Wow.
2: <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, a, and that's a surprising uh, ringing endorsement for the series. So, uh, you know, this, I guess it's nice that Guy Gardner sort of levels it out, and then afterwards, you know, it all goes down. Yeah, this podcast is going to be torture.
1: (laughs) I don't know. I particularly enjoyed the number 10, the Phantom Stranger one. That's one of my favorites of all time.
0: That is a good one. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. (laughs) All right, so Sean, Chad, you both come from Green Lantern-centric podcasts. Uh, I'd like to hear how you discovered the character, your experiences with Green Lantern, the property, and what about the concept kind of made you such fans? Um, Chad, you can go first. What is your origin with Green Lantern?
1: Uh, yeah, it it kind of goes back and forth in terms of what f- the first comic I read was. But I'm pretty sure my first exposure was probably the Justice League animated series uh, with Jon Stewart. Um, not really one of my particularly favorite characters on the show, but it just it kind of always stuck in my mind and I remember going to um, uh, a Borders when Borders was around uh, and kind of browsing through their comic section and I picked up, I think, like Volume 2 of the Showcase Edition, like those black and white reprints uh, of a Green Lantern because they didn't have Volume 1 and then I saw this thing called Green Lantern Rebirth. Um, and I really liked the more modern art in there. And I started reading that and I enjoyed it. So I found a comic book store and started picking up the comics regularly, starting with, uh, the rage of the red lanterns, final crisis special, which uh, happened right after the Sinestro court war. Uh, so I had mm-hmm. missed, missed out on that, but that, that was when my regular comics reading, uh, had started and I've read every issue since then. Um, it kind of, you know, Kind of went in both feet feet uh, feet first, and uh, you know started looking at podcasts and you know various things. And I was you know just typed in Green Lantern, found a few different things, found the Lantern Cast, and it was being it, it had basically started up right around the time I got into Green Lantern. Um, one of their first episodes, uh, review episodes was the final crisis Rage of the Red Lanterns special. So I was like, oh, okay, well, this is a good place to start. And I became an active, avid listener for a long time. Uh, then I started doing something called the Larfleeze report where I started, you know, going through previews and pulling all the Green Lantern stuff out of there and telling people about it in this own little segment. And then one of the co-hosts, Dan, stepped down, uh, for his time for, you know, to devote time to other things, um, and I was one of the rotating guest hosts. Uh, and then Dan came back, uh, and uh, I was inducted as a co-host officially. And then uh, about a year ago, Dan and Jim stepped down uh, officially for their own reason. They've been doing it for five years. They weren't that excited by the Jeff John stuff or, or – or, uh, uh, they figured after Jeff Johns had left with issue 20, uh, they decided, well, I guess, you know, we're not that excited to cover the current issues anymore. We're just kind of – we've lost the luster for it. It's become a little more of a chore. We've got other things to do, and they passed it along to me. And I brought, brought on uh, uh, one of the other active listeners of the show, Mark Marble, and now Mark and I are co-hosting the Lantern Cast. And we've been going at it for a little over a year now.
0: I, st- I really started listening to the show Around the time that you took over, because or the time that you and Mark took over, because I stopped reading the Green Lantern books regularly when Jeff Johns left the book, mm. um, so the Lantern cast was the way that I kept up with a lot of the the current stories that were going on. Um, like you, uh, Green Lantern Rebirth was was one of the books that brought me into current modern DC. Um, I had been reading much a lot more Marvel stuff at the time. Um, And Rebirth was one of the books that hooked me and brought me back to the the sort of greater DC universe. Um, And also, yeah, I I knew a lot about the Green Lantern world from the Justice League animated universe. And as much as I like Jon Stewart in the comics, I'm not a fan of him on that show. When you're in a team or in a room with Batman and Martian Manhunter, and Jon Stewart is the most cold and emotionless one in the room, (laughs) that's Pretty difficult to pull off Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah Other than that, yeah, a fan of the characters Sean, how did you become familiar With the Green Lantern?
2: Well, essentially, this is going to be the get-off-my-lawn Cast, because I'm assuming I'm a bit Older than you guys And my, (laughs) my My first introduction To the Green Lantern character came in With the Super Friends, or the challenge Of the Super Friends, where Hal Jordan was on there So, I knew him from that Cartoon but then my introduction to him in comics probably came in the you know, late 80s, early 90s when Gerard Jones started the reboot of the Green Lantern story up then. Uh, I followed that essentially all the way up to the Kyle Rayner run. And throughout that, I was a big fan of Guy Gardner also in that and the uh, Justice League Unlimited – or not Justice League Unlimited, Justice League International series. Um, uh, Guy essentially became my favorite character because he was so misunderstood. Um, He was one of these people who everyone superficially saw him as just a complete and utter jerk. But if you got people who wrote him in a proper way, he was always, he was always the guy who got chose second. He was never the person who, who won. And I, I always sort of identified with that ideal of the character. So, uh, you know, I read Guy and uh, Green Lantern throughout the 90s. I kept up uh, even with uh, Guy turning into his Boldarian warrior phase. I, I loved that simply because Bo Smith was writing the book, and I thought that was really enjoyable. Uh, when Hal Jordan became Parallax and everything happened with uh, Emerald Knight, I followed that as well as the introduction of Kyle Rayner, and Kyle Rayner actually became my second favorite Green Lantern uh, And I think the reason he enticed me so was because Kyle was kind of the DC version of Spider-Man. He was this person who was given this incredible power, just this average person. And he, he, he wasn't chosen specifically because he was fearless or he was uh, a superhero. He was just a person who was at the right place in the right time. But because he was such a good person, he became an amazing hero and, that's one of the reasons I, I I like Green Lantern. It's because the the sort of wish fulfillment thing that you know you've got this ama- you've got this simple little ring, which can do anything you want, provided you're imaginative enough. And that's one of the things that sort of fuels my love or my desire for these characters.
0: Yeah, that's uh, I've really have never really thought of Kyle in that way, but that's that's a really cool way of framing I mean, him. That, that gives me something else to think about. Um, even though i did i said that rebirth was one of the things that brought me into into the sort of modern dc i had read a few of the issues before and i think well i i knew of i knew who green lantern was like the character from the merchandising from the superpowers and super friends toys and i think the first green lantern comic i got was maybe issue 50 from at the end of emerald twilight so we're mm-hmm. talking about right as Hal was being killed off as parallax and Kyle was being introduced mm-hmm. um, and then I got issue zero during the 0, uh, zero month event after zero hour because um, I kept trying to get into DC during the 90s and just nothing was clicking so I, I read a few of those issues they just didn't they didn't hook me they didn't capture me um, but uh, yeah so cool cool good stories um, before we get into this issue for Secret Origins issue seven, uh, for the listeners, I just want to kind of give a brief little Green Lantern publication history, and at the end of this, uh, I'm sure you know I'm I'm just going to be doing a very brief overview of the original Green Lanterns um, because some of these characters will pop up in later stories in Secret Origins, and we can cover them in much more depth there. But if there's anything that Sean or Or, Chad, if you guys want to add anything to the end of this, just feel free to pipe in. Okay. Uh, The first Green Lantern was created by Martin Nodell and debuted in All-American Comics issue 16 back in the summer of 1940. The Green Lantern, whose real name was Alan Scott, was drawn by Nodell and written by Bill Finger, who fans may know as the uncredited co-creator of Batman. The Alan Scott Green Lantern appeared in All-American Comics, but in less than a year, he would also help found the Justice Society of America in All-Star Comics and headline the self-titled Green Lantern book. Scott gained his powers when he discovered a magical lantern in the aftermath of a train crash. He used the lantern to fashion a magic ring, giving him all sorts of fantastic powers. And as with most heroes of the golden age of comics, Green Lantern faded away during the early 1950s, only to be reimagined as Hal Jordan, a fearless test pilot who inherits the power ring from a dying alien member of the Green Lantern Corps. The Hal Jordan version of Green Lantern, who first appeared in Showcase 22 in 1959, was yet another sci-fi retooling of an established character under the helm of editor Julius Schwartz. With the creation of the Silver Age Green Lantern, the whole concept changed from Mystic Adventure to Space Cop. Now the Green Lantern was one of thousands of ring-wielding enforcers of cosmic justice, answering to the all-knowing Guardians of the Universe. And while Hal Jordan is selected to the Green Lantern Corps for a very specific reason, he is by no means indispensable. In fact, several replacement characters appear in the decades between 1960 and today. The first replacement Lantern to actually get the Power Ring and play with it was Jon Stewart, premiering in Green Lantern 87 in 1971. John Stewart was DC Comics' first black superhero and possibly best known to a generation of fans as the Green Lantern from the DC animated universe. But John was not the first replacement for Hal. In fact, as we'll see in this issue, Hal Jordan nearly wasn't the first human member of the Green Lantern Corps. That honor almost went to a gym teacher named Guy Gardner. First appearing in Green Lantern 59 as an almost what-if tale, fate and circumstance prevented Guy from becoming a regular member of the Green Lantern Corps until the events leading up to the Crisis on Infinite Earths. And that sort of brings us up to when this issue of Secret Origins came out. Of course, the history and the popularity of all of the Green Lantern characters would shift over time. But we can get into that a little bit after we recap the story in this issue. So, Chad, Sean, were there any major points from the history that I forgot or that you want to include? Not that I can think of, Chad.
1: No, no, I'm good. I've I've actually got uh, a copy of Green Lantern 59 in my collection. So, first appearance of Guy Gardner is is in my hands as we speak.
0: Very cool. Oh, that is sweet. (laughs) Okay, we're going to take a quick promotional break, but we'll be back in a minute, so don't go away.
1: I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Dorn, And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired
3: of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio Versus the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters?
1: Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship
3: run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a
1: genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write
3: your congressmen and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on Radio vs. The Martians com.
0: We're back and we're looking at the first story in Secret Origins number seven. And first, let's talk about this cover. What do you guys
2: think? Uh, I think it's beautiful. I mean, uh, it's actually one of the things that kind of disappoints me about the story, unfortunately. The cover by Brian Bolland, it's really simple. You've got the overview of the Sandman at the top, and you've got Guy Gardner bursting through with Hal Jordan in the background sort of charging his ring. I don't think you get much better artist than Brian Bolland at this point in time. But it would have been really wonderful if we could have gotten him to draw the interiors. Unfortunately, if Brian Ballen was drawing the interiors, we'd still probably be waiting for it to get done today. <laughs> sadly, uh, possibly, yeah.
1: But <laughs> um, my, my thoughts on it—I mean, it's—it's it's definitely when you're going through the back issue bins, it's definitely a standout cover. Uh, because everything else, uh, for the most part, is usually in color uh, and very uh, uh, dynamic. Uh, not that this isn't, but, like, I've got a stack of Secret Origins in front of me. I've got number 10, which is The Phantom Stranger, 15, which is Spectre and Dead Man, uh, 18, which is Golden, Golden Age GL and Creeper, uh, 23, which is Floranic Man and Guardians of the Universe, and then 36, which is Green Lantern and Poison Ivy. And these are all, you know, just when you put this comic in, in that stack, it definitely stands out. Um, I like it. I think it's super detailed, and I agree with Sean about the art uh, compared to the interiors. Uh, but I think the only problem I have with it is the white and green versus like a uh, uh, the white and green versus like a white and black. For whatever reason, I've just never liked a combination other than strictly black and white. Mm. Uh, and I don't. I don't mean I don't appreciate the art. I just mean for whatever reason the combination of another color and white as opposed to a strictly black and white layout just doesn't resonate with me for whatever reason.
2: Fair enough.
0: I yeah, I, I can totally understand that. And I wonder if because it's a dark kind of forest green, it almost looks like it's misprinted. Right. And I wonder if it was like a different, more you know, natural, sort of bright, vi- more vibrant green, if that would if that would stand out more. But then I think you lose something of the Sandman, if you kind of alter that, if you made it more bright. Um, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I mean...
2: Yeah, it's I, an interesting contrast of characters. The Sandman is more dark, uh, sort of... You know, dark, not as in colored, but sort of dark character, while Greenlander is supposed to be more bright and uh, light-filled. So... <laughs> having these two on the cover, you kind of have to balance the color scheme on there to uh, get them both to work on it. Yeah.
4: Right.
0: But I, again, I think the fact that it, it is almost, I mean, it's a, it's a monochrome cover um, with the exception of the, the bright yellow lettering for the, the text for the names. I think that does help it stand out. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, Brian Bowen did some green lantern covers, right? I think at the, at the beginning of his career at DC, he had done a few covers for Action Comics, and I think for
2: Green Lantern too.
1: I do not know that off the top of my head.
2: Yeah, I, I'm going to have to claim ignorance as well, unfortunately. Okay. Well, I will look that up, and if
0: I'm wrong, I will just edit this part out.
2: <laughs>
0: so. Yep, I'm right. Brian Bolland's first work at DC was the cover to Green Lantern issue 127. Enough about the cover. Uh, let's actually get into this story. Um, and Sean... Would you be so good as to uh, do the synopsis for the story?
2: I will, definitely. This Secret Origins uh, book came out, uh, or at least it was cover dated October 1986 and released on June t- or July 10th of 1986. This comes from Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Uh, the cover price was $1.25 U.S., $1.75 in Canada, and 60 pence in the United Kingdom. The title of this story was The Secret Origin of Guy Gardner, with story written by Steve Englehart. The pencils were by Ernie Colin, the inker was Roden Rodriguez, the letter was Augustine Moss, the colorist was Anthony Tolan, and the editor of the book was Robert Greenberger. That Guy Gardner, he's kind of a jerk, right? Well, he wasn't always this way, and this tale aims to set the record straight. Guy started out as a teacher in Baltimore, trying to make sure that his students did their best even if that meant crossing a picket line of striking teachers. In Guy's mind, right was right, and wrong was wrong. Walking home from the school one day, Guy sees a strange meteor zoom overhead, but he is more concerned about making sure that his students don't fail. Unbeknownst to Guy, the meteor was a spacecraft carrying Abin Sur, the Green Lantern of Sector 2814, who is busy crashing said craft into the American Southwest. Knowing that he's dying, Avan tells his ring to search out a worthy successor for his post. Scanning the planet, the ring finds two such men. The first being Guy Gardner, and the second being test pilot Hal Jordan. Being closer to the crash site, Avan selects Hal and transports him to his ship. Meanwhile, Guy Gardner has the odd feeling that something's happened, or more correctly, didn't happen to him. But Guy shrugs it off as the teacher strike is on, and his convictions will probably lose him some friends. Taking it all in stride, Guy comes home to watch the Orioles game and sees a news report about a new hero called Green Lantern. As time went on, Guy kept working with kids, especially tubby little Freddie Burtz, dating study art house chicks and getting his drink on at the beach. Then one day, Guy was totally not homosexually approached by a guy at his gym who wanted to play handball and get to know him. Wink. <laughs> That totally in no way, shape, or form person who wanted to watch a sweaty, shirtless guy gardener flex on the rings, shower, and change clothes, mm-hmm, was none other than Hal Jordan, the man who had learned that Guy was almost chosen to be Green Lantern. After a couple of weeks together, which assuredly did not involve spooning at all, I'm completely serious, Hal says goodbye to his new friend as Guy wishes that he had the freedom that Hal did. But Guy is happy working at the school and doesn't shed a tear over the departure of his lover. Friend, friend, I mean, friend. He's not anyway. So much know. subtext that you're reading into the story. <laughs> I guess so. Some time has passed, and Guy is actually getting a chance to come to California. Sadly, it's as a chaperone on his student's bus trip. Daydreaming about how, in a totally platonic way, Guy feels a strange connectedness to Hal, as well as a s- image of a spaceship. But that thought is broken by the sudden occurrence of an earthquake which has the bus teetering off the side of a high mountain road. Guy tries to get all the kids out, but little Sudi Delancey has to be a giant pain in the ass and climb out on an outcropping where the road has collapsed. Fearing for both their lives, Guy moves towards the scared girl and tries to rescue her, but the weight of Guy is too much for the damaged road, and the two plummet to the ground. Luckily, Green Lantern just happens to be patrolling the area, and he rescues both of them. But Guy's body was broken up by the impact, and he'll need at least six months to recover. Hal, ever concerned about himself, decides to look for a replacement Green Lantern while Guy lies in hospital. Seven months later, Guy is recovered enough to take in the wonders of a traveling carnival, as we all love to do. Heading into the fortune reader's tent, Guy encounters Carrie Limbo, who reads his future and tells him that one day he will be part of a great tradition. Guy laughs it off, but decides to ask the sexy soothsayer out after the carnival closes. Carrie accepts, and romance abounds, with Guy following Carrie in the carnival around on the weekends, strengthening his love for her. The two look like they're ready to settle down in St. Louis when Guy is approached once again by Green Lantern. Telling him that Guy was the first one chosen to wield the wing, and saying that he needs to travel to Oa to repair his, Hal reveals himself to Guy, hands him a Green Lantern ring, and tells him to head to Star City to meet up with Green Arrow. Ditching Carrie, Guy heads at Star City where Oliver Crean witnesses a weird illusion coming out of Hal's battery. Unfazed, probably thinking it was just after effects of last night's shrooms, Ollie brushes it off and is introduced to Guy. The duo go off to fight a giant floaty eyeball, then upon their semi triumphant return, Guy goes to recharge his ring and is sucked into another dimension for his trouble. Meanwhile, in St. Louis, Hal is approaching Carrie Limbo with the news of Guy's supposed demise. Enraged, Carrie smacks Hal across the face and then falls into his arms, grief stricken. Knowing that this is so very, very wrong, but being the horniest superhero alive, Hal decides to comfort Carrie. The horizontal comforting, if you know what I mean. Unbeknownst to the duo, Guy wasn't killed, but just transported to another dimension where he witnesses Hal and Carrie making the beast with two backs. Drifting in and out of consciousness, Guy next sees Sinestro getting bopped in the head by a green co- boxing glove construct wielded by Hal Jordan, who has found the dimensionally displaced Guy and brought him back to Earth. In a hospital bed, Hal watches a comatose Guy Gardner, as the doctor says that he might not ever recover. Carrie Limbo has also come over to watch over Guy, and Hal says it's probably for the best that they don't get freaky in front of him, even though he is a brain-dead vegetable. Carrie agrees and wonders if in this state... Guy Dreams of Love or Vengeance. And there we go. All right, uh, Chad, your thoughts on the story? Uh, I, I liked it. Uh,
1: I, I agree that the art isn't uh, the greatest compared to like the cover, but I, I don't have any particular problem uh, with it. Um, I will say that there are a couple of differences, I think, uh, right off the top of my head, from the uh, original origin of, of Guy Gardner as told in Green Lantern 59. those pages where Avin is crashing and it's kind of recapping that whole story obviously happens in, in Green Lantern uh, 59. but one, just one small uh, notable difference here uh, Hal is whizzed to Avan's side by himself as opposed to in the uh, in the test uh, the test pilot thing that he was taken originally taken in yep. which it shows up in the story here. So there is that. Uh, and uh, another thing is when they're going through the recap of uh, Guy being stuck in the interdimensional space, uh, he was at times in the antimatter universe and in the uh, Phantom Zone. Uh, so he was uh, tortured and, and, uh, and uh, heckle, you know, just messed with, shall we say, by not only Sinestro but also General Zod, which they don't mention here.
2: Now, I'm wondering if that's because at the time this came out in 86, yeah. mm-hmm. was Crisis on Infinite Earths either going on or completed by this time?
0: It was over by this time. So the so Phantom the multiple... Zone, they might have still been figuring out exactly what that was. Okay. Um, yeah, so I mean, maybe I mean they there's, to... a, there's an ad in this book for Man of Steel. So you know that John Byrne was sort of reinventing the Superman world at the time that this was coming out. Right. Um, yeah,
2: so maybe tackling... The Phantom Zone and all of its history, you know, pre-crisis was something that they kind of had to sort of finagle around in the story. Right. Right. I'm not necessarily pointing it out as an inaccuracy in the
1: book; just more of people familiar with guys' origin might read this and go, "Wait, where's where's General Zod?" You know what I mean? Right. And
0: yeah, I think I think they might point to the story is 18 pages. Um, as opposed to the Sandman one that follows it being 22. And and the ending is very rushed. And I wonder if if Inglehart was planning for a full 22 pages or something closer to that. Because it feels like it's almost mid-story. Like he's still in a coma. And then all of a sudden it's just a, a final panel of him flying around. It's like, yeah, he's awake now. You probably want to go back and read Green Lantern like 180 through 200 to figure out what's been going on. And how he came out of the coma. Um, The fact that Guy is a P.E. teacher is a different type of career for a superhero. It feels comparatively tame to a test pilot. I think the bravery of somebody who crosses a picket line during a teacher's strike, while that might be able to get dangerous, I don't necessarily equate that with the bravery of somebody who gets into an experimental aircraft that could explode 30,000 feet in the air.
2: No, it's it's really it's really vastly different amounts of courage. Obviously, you could look at how Jordan is being a test pilot, and he has to have a significant amount of courage. But it could just be also the role that Guy took. Guy may have had the same proportional amount of courage or willpower, whatever you'd like to reason it out as as Hal would. It's just his career path didn't lead him to doing something incredibly dangerous. Right. He, he took the root of wanting to be an educator of some sort. So right. There
0: and, which is still, I, I think I think the story does a good job of of pointing out that he was still a very noble-hearted and very good person. He is fighting for the people who can't fight for themselves. He's helping the students who need the most help. And that is really important. And I think seeing the moment of the bus crash and how he is willing to put his life on the line in this extraordinarily dangerous situation um, and going out on this broken bridge to save the girl um, is, is that defining moment where we see that, yes, this guy is a hero, even if he didn't have the superpowers. And I think that's a good moment for every superhero origin, especially a Green Lantern type of origin where you see even if Hal didn't have the ring, even if Guy didn't have the ring, even if Kyle didn't have the ring, they would still put theirsel- themselves in jeopardy at the right time. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's why they get the ring. That's why, because they put themselves in danger regardless. So that is a crucial moment. And I think it was, I think it was well done. I think it was handled well in the story. Um, and that was originally done in, was that in John Stewart's first appearance? Was that back in Green Lantern 87?
1: Yep. This all happens in Green Lantern 87.
0: Okay. There you go. Any other notes? I did not have a whole lot of notes for this story. Again, I feel like the the ending was a little bit rushed. I felt like it, it did a good job of establishing that guy, despite not having the most glamorous or sexy of professions, he was still a noble guy, an inherently good character. Um, Sean, you read the synopsis. What did you think of the story? Uh,
2: I, I enjoyed it, and I have to agree with you. I think it's... At, at the point in time when this came out, the Justice League International was starting up, Guy was portrayed pretty much in that as just the jerk right-wing mm-hmm. character.
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: I think this does a good job to sort of humanize Guy and show what he's been through. He's 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 not always... And I think it also points to... You know, Giffen and De Mateus writing the character in that way that gives people this sort of perception of Guy when honestly his origin is of a very noble character, a person who's trying to do the best thing for these kids regardless of the fact that he's not a superhero with a, uh, a magical wishing ring that allows him to do anything that he wants. That's what I take away from this story that Guy is more than just a Green Lantern who's the angry you know, impertinent. Uh, so this is this this is a good story to sort of show people who are have negative opinions about Guy that he wasn't always this way, and plus he, he was in the you know I think it, I think you're right. It would have been better if we could have gotten a little bit more storyline about him being in the Phantom Zone and what happened to him because he had to endure all this torture and pain while everyone else thought he was dead and. Hal Jordan was essentially hooking up with his whore of a girlfriend, Carrie Limbo. Mm
4: -hmm. I'm
2: sorry, but, you know, oh, oh, I love you, guy, I love you. You know, oh, you're dead. Hal, I hate you. (laughs) Oh, Hal, you're so rugged.
1: Hal Hal actually almost marries her at the end of the Green Lantern, Green Arrow title.
2: And, And actually, Carrie Limbo is one of the few people to actually get Hal to almost walk down the aisle to the altar. I mean, you know, you can't say that about Carol Ferris. You can't say that about pretty much anyone I've been with. So, yeah, Carrie Limbo, she has some sort of magical, mystical, carnival power that amount and that almost allowed her to marry Hal Jordan.
0: Yeah, but this was before they redesigned the Star Sapphire costume for Carol. So,
2: <laughs> oh, oh my, yes, that—that's
1: yeah. Do you think make make, make smart men go stupid? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you were talking about the way Guy was portrayed by Giffen and Dematteis in, in Justice League, Justice League International, and how it is a completely different character from the one that Engelhart is writing in this story. I, I don't know enough about like Green Lantern after 200, after the Crisis, when he kind of comes back. Was it explained or at least justified this change in his? In his attitude, based on his torture and his time in limbo, and what
2: Sinestro and what Zod did to him, does that they kind of they kind of wrote it off as brain trauma, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sadly, which I think was a just a sort of weak way to write it out. That oh, he's had you know s- you know too many hits on the head, and it's brain trauma, and he he's not thinking right, and so he's he, he's des or he's uh. Not predestined, but uh, predisposed to actually be sort of this, you know, go off and this angry character. And it it seemed like just weak storytelling. Uh, Eventually, later on in the series of Justice League, they'd write Guy some, some moments where he wasn't a complete jerk. But it wasn't until, you know... Guy got his own little short-lived solo series that you were able to flesh some things out with like Chuck Dixon and Bo Smith coming in on the, to write the character.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think if you were to read into it a little more, uh, I mean, obviously they didn't put this in there, but I think when you read into Guy's history, you know, even going beyond this issue, um, the tour, he's, he, even though he was Green Lantern, he's still a human. Uh, he had, he endured physical, uh, injury. Uh, obviously there, there probably was some brain trauma in there, but regardless of whether it was lasting or not, it's another, it's a whole nother matter, but he was a human subjected to alien tortures in dimensions outside of his own while all the while watching what's going on with his love in, in this other, in in the real world. So that's bound to have some sort of messed up effect on your head. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think it was ever really written very well, it, it, at least not to the point where every time Guy acted like an ass, which was all the time, uh, you, you could still always take a step back and go, well, wait a sec, look what he's been through.
2: Yeah, they, they never really focused on, especially in the story, they don't really focus on the kind of emotional and physical torture that he had to go through. So you can kind of you can kind of say this is why Guy is acting this way, but it doesn't excuse why he's act that way.
1: Yeah. And I think also the story that the guy goes through, although he's, you know, and, and asked for so long of his, his, uh, his career in, in comics is better than his origin because in 59, you, uh, Ryan, you'd said it was almost like a, a what if an alternate universe kind of story guy actually becomes green lantern and, and, and is chosen to be green lantern in this alternate world or whatever only to die and have Hal Jordan be chosen anyways. <laughs> yeah. So, in this alternate universe, Guy is nobody. <laughs> he's, he's, he's Green Lantern. He does a great job. He saves planets and people and defeats villains. But he still ends up dying anyways for Hal to rightfully become Green Lantern anyways.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. Not, sure, not sure they originally had much of uh, a, a far-reaching plan for the character.
2: Yeah. Um, Sadly, no. No.
0: But... The pigheadishness and the the brutishness of how he is depicted in Justice League uh, that I- that is such a defining characteristic trait, and I think I think what made it so popular and so enduring was because DC didn't have other characters like that. Um, he he just he felt so different from the norm and. The only other character that I can think of who was that, just that much of a boss hater and that antagonistic toward everybody, but still lovable because you knew that inherently he was going to do the right thing, is probably Wolverine from the X-Men. Mm. Um, I, I, I That's the parallel that I draw. I mean, Wolverine was always a crappy, you know, he, he was a bastard to Cyclops to everybody, but you loved him. And he was still—he still ended up being charming and and lovable because you knew his heart was in the right place. Um, but he was a boss hater, and I think I think Guy came off that way a lot in those early Justice League issues, up to the point where Batman had to put him down. Mm-hmm. I actually, I
1: actually get a little bit of a, and I agree with your comparison there. I also get a little bit of a, a maybe like a Booster Gold vibe mm-hmm. from Guy. I think that might be fair as well.
2: Well, but having having Guy and Booster in the book, you know, Booster definitely came off as more likable, and of course, sure. Booster, Booster sided himself with a Blue Beetle, and you know, those two became a pair, and that allowed him to sort of those two to sort of team up against Guy. So Booster at least had someone there to watch his back when he was kind of you know acting sort of jerkish and self centered and whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know, yeah, I agree. Guy can definitely be. In his like his DePatieus and Giffen run as the stereotypical antihero, and uh, yeah, I can agree. Wolverine's a good Marvel comparison to him is you know he's kind of a the asshole with a heart of gold. At least that's mm-hmm. how I view him.
0: Uh, can you tell us a little bit where did the character go from here after you know Crisis after sort of after Justice League International? What happened to Guy?
2: Well, after this, uh, in issue twenty-five of Green Lantern during the during the early nineties. Uh, he and Hal Jordan basically had it out. Hal had gotten back the ring, and he had you know the the guardians had come back, and they were reestablishing the core and Hal basically came to earth to say, "I want sector twenty eight fourteen back for myself." so he decided to have you know a fight between him and guy, and then eventually won out that that Hal won that fight, and Guy reluctantly gave up the ring after that. Guy decided, well, I still want to be a hero of some sort, but I don't have the ring. What am I going to do? He ended up trying to take down people sort of uh, Batman slash Punisher-like. That didn't really work for him. So he thought to himself, hmm, I think the Guardians have Sinestro's yellow power ring stashed on Oa. Why don't I go get that, and I can use that for myself? And that involved him teaming up with Lobo, learning how to fight Having a story, Guy Gardner reborn, where he actually does go and get the yellow power ring, and for a while he's wielding Sinestro's yellow power ring and functioning as a Green Lantern-like character, but just using the Sinestro yellow power ring. Still does the same stuff, but Guy really doesn't understand it. After that, eventually, with all the things in Emerald Twilight and uh, uh, what you know, the, the the Emerald Dawn and all that story. Guy loses the ring because Hal Jordan has destroyed the Green Lantern Corps. Um, the you know the Guardians all died off and left the ring for uh, Kyle, except for Ganthet. And Hal became Parallax. So Guy went on his own little sort of vision quest to become a warrior, and uh, basically he found out that he has alien DNA in his blood which is comes from this race called boldarians which allows him to in a very 90s fashion morph various weapons and guns out of his body. Yeah, it was the 90s folks. It wasn't it wasn't the greatest part but even though guy turned into this sort of living weapon with all these ridiculously goofy tattoos all over himself it was a really fun era, era for me at least, because Bo Smith was writing it, and he wrote him as just this macho, fun-loving guy and gave him this interesting cast of characters, which included uh, Lady Blackhawk and uh, Wildcat was in the story and all that. So it was just a fun little run. After that, he decided to, as you do, open up a bar in New York City. And uh, up until uh, Rebirth, he basically was sort of sidelined as being a sort of owner and proprietor of essentially the DC version of Planet Hollywood.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Is that it, Sean? You're gonna leave out the most important Guy Gardner story of all? <sighs> <laughs> are you referencing the story that I'm thinking you're referencing?
1: <laughs> the, the two issue prestige format, greatest story of all
0: <laughs> You shut your pie that don't even mention that. Oh you gotta <laughs> I I'm not familiar with what you guys are talking about, so now you've got to tell me.
2: Do not mention collateral damage on this show. Oh. We're trying to keep this a classy joint. I've um, heard of it. I've heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> like I like I said I think I've said this before on various other shows. I downloaded that digitally for free and I still want my money back. <laughs> that was, you know, I love, you know, I'm I'm a fan of Howard Chakin. He did the original uh 6 issues of Star Wars. It was brilliant. This was this was the Guy Gardner collateral damage was just painful to read. <laughs> that will not be in my recommendations of stuff to pick up if you're wanting to read more about Guy Gardner.
1: Well, pick, picking up from where Sean left off, uh, after rebirth, uh, well, during rebirth, actually, Jeff Johns race, erases all the, the Voldarian stuff. Uh, basically, Guy's body rejects the, Vol- the, the Voldarian side of himself, and he is restored to being a green lantern and green lantern only um later on in the series i mean just basically throughout the series guy is nothing but a green lantern i mean he's he's and he's a great one at that he's a really fun character he's still a bit of an ass but it's he's not so far out into that personality that you cannot like him uh he takes chances he does what needs to be done sometimes he breaks the rules but it you know it's always you know guy gardner's doing it right um and uh he actually even gets his own series after a little while called uh uh, emerald warriors um which is a fantastic series um and then later on after the after jeff johns uh leaves uh uh, leaves green lantern guy gardner becomes a red lantern uh, he is sent by Hal Jordan to uh, Atrocitus and the Red Lantern Corps. Guy unseats uh, unseats uh, Atrocitus as the leader of the Red Lanterns. Eventually defeats him. Uh, Atrocitus, you know, ends up coming back and challenging Guy again and attacks Earth and this whole thing. Um, and throughout all of this, um, it's there's a deal made with the Green Lantern Corps that. The Green Lantern Corps is no longer in charge of Sector 2814. It's part of the Red Lanterns becoming involved. Guy Gardner and his Red Lanterns become the people who police 2814. They get a whole sector to themselves. Simon Baz, Green Lantern, is allowed to stay uh, as a liaison to the Green Lantern Corps, but he's restricted only to Earth. The rest of Sector 2814 is Guy Gardner and the Red Lanterns' territory. Um and I think the Red Lantern started off really, really, really bad. Uh, it was an atrocitous soapbox. Uh, it was, you know, this, this atrocitous was a whiny, uh, unrelatable, uh, just completely annoying uh, character, not at all a formidable villain. Uh, but after Charles Sewell, more in particular, uh, comes on the book, uh, and starts writing and guy Gardner's in charge of the Green Lantern co- or the Red Lantern Corps that is where you get uh, some pretty amazing stories um, so in terms of in terms of things I reference uh, I, I recommend with green Lantern uh, guy Gardner Green Lantern Guy Gardner I would say Emerald Warriors definitely worth a pickup I think it's about uh, 11 to 13 issue series something 13, like that yeah uh, and then I would definitely recommend Charles Sewell on Red Lanterns um, for Guy Gardner centric stories, I obviously have other favorite Green Lantern overall stories, but Guy Gardner in particular, Emerald Warriors, and then the Charles Soule written uh, Red Lanterns is pretty amazing.
0: And the best part about the Red Lantern story is once Guy gets the red ring, he gets a haircut that makes him look like a roadie for Leonard Skinner.
2: <laughs> and a mustache to end all yeah. mustaches. <laughs> oh yeah, the uh, porn stash that would make porn stars be jealous. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's out there.
0: Uh, Sean, what about your recommended readings? Favorite, uh, favorite Guy Gardner stories?
2: Well, I'm going to go a little further back again, once because you know my purvey is more the '80s and '90s stuff. Um, I, I'm a big fan, like I said, of uh, Bo Smith and Chuck Dixon on the Guy Gardner series and the, the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as Guy Gardner Warrior. Um, issues 11 through 14 of that was a story written by Chuck Dixon called "Yesterday's Sins." And it's essentially a year one story of Guy Gardner. It basically tells more about Guy Gardner's origins than this kid, his abusive father, his sort of neglectful mother, and his his brother Mace, who was essentially lauded on and loved by his parents while Guy was basically put down by them. Uh, Chuck Dixon does a really great story, a uh, wonderful art by Joe Staten. Joe Staten is – for me, the Guy Gardner artist, he, he, he draws him the way that I think of when I think of Guy Gardner. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of issues of Guy Gardner Warrior, number 22 and 23, which are the transitional phases after Guy has lost the yellow ring and uh, how has become Parallax, where Bo Smith takes on the character and basically writes Guy as a two-fisted man of action and what's great about this story is guys just going into essentially the savage land and having battles with Nazis who like to ride on top of dinosaurs. And if that statement doesn't make me want to read the book, then I, I feel that you need to just get off this podcast. <laughs> I'm
0: going Nazi, to my comic store right now and looking for
2: Nazi, it. Nazi dinosaurs being punched out by Guy Gardner <laughs> is awesome. <laughs> um, and I, I guess finally I would say, and this is just for fun, and this was sort of the first real solo one-shot Green Lantern story that uh, Guy was able to do. And people may look on this as kind of silly, but it was was Green Lantern Volume 3, Numbers 9 through 12, which is a story called Guy and His Nort.
1: <laughs> I knew you which, were going to go there. <laughs> which,
2: and, and as much as Nort is such a, a Mort character and such a goofball... This story is just incredibly fun. Gerard Jones does uh, – has got a fun take on Guy. Nort actually is somewhat heroic by the end of it. There's elements of, Sinestro, of a Sinestro cult in it. It's it's just and, – and again, Joe Staten does the art in it, and it's just a lot of fun. Um this one can actually, I think, be picked up on Comicsology if you guys are wanting to check that out. That's uh, probably on sale for like dollar ninety nine or so, or you can probably pick it up at your LCS as well. But this is just a fun read and and well worth it. And you know, it's it's my era. It's what it's what made me a fan of Guy Gardner. And I think
1: I think one last thing for Guy Gardner specific uh, that we would probably recommend. Sean, I don't know if you've actually seen it. Have you seen the Green Lantern animated series? Uh, yeah okay
2: yeah i've seen I've seen the I haven't i haven't seen I know he came up later in the series but I saw the introduction of him mm-hmm. the the new the new lantern I think it was in season two right the 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 guy Gardner doesn't have a heavy
1: presence in that series but he is in there and I think every moment you see Guy Gardner in the animated series is pure perfect guy Gardner <laughs> uh, it's- it's so very I, um, much
2: on the Jeff Johns. It's very much the Jeff Johns era of Guy Gardner, but it still has elements of the Guy Gardner that you know throughout his, you know his publication history. For sure, but, that's, but in terms of Green uh, Guy Gardner specific stuff, is instead of
1: best Green Lantern stories, I would definitely say uh, Guy Gardner gets a, a pretty good uh, run over there in the animated series.
2: And uh, again, if you uh, you know, since we're mentioning animated series as well. He appeared in a couple of episodes of uh, the Batman the Brave and the Bold story. Mm. In fact, uh, right. there was a Batman Brave and the Bold where uh, they reenact the one-punch issue yep. uh, with uh, Batman ba- essentially punching Guy out. So that was fun.
0: I had completely forgotten about that Guy had the yellow ring at one point. But I that was probably because I, I didn't read Justice League International until years later. Um, I think my... Probably the first time I saw Guy Gardner in comics might have been the Death of Superman story arc, mm. um, and I think that I think he was he was the yellow ring guy at that time.
2: Yep, he um, had the yellow ring and the leather jacket and yeah. all that.
0: And I've only read one issue of Warrior, and it was it was issue zero from the Zero Hour tie-in, and I did not like it, but I also didn't understand it. I didn't have the context for what was it, going on.
2: It is very, very 90s. Yeah. Uh, you know, The whole idea of that was Bo Smith was wanting to write Guy Gardner as a sort of pulp-type hero. In fact, he surrounded him with various pulp-type characters, a lot of people who was, uh, one of the characters was supposed to be a sort of Doc Savage analog, mm-hmm. and DC basically said, well, we want to give Guy morphing powers, and Bo Smith was like, okay, well, he can morph weapons, like <laughs> knives, and... Daggers and stuff, think sort of the the Terminator Two or the T One Thousand from Terminator Two. Yeah, and then they said, "No, we want him to have laser cannons and plasma guns and things coming out of his ass," and then it was just it just went downhill from there. Well, my
0: uh, my guy Gardner recommendations. I really enjoyed the Green Lantern Core book from the mid-2000s between Recharge mm-hmm. and Sinestro Core. I liked it a lot more when Dave Gibbons was writing it than when Pete Tomasi did. Um, and in terms of feeling like a space cop book with Guy and Kyle together, I mm-hmm. really liked their relationship. And it felt, if I was going to compare it to you know, a, a cop show, I, I likened it to NYPD Blue with Guy Gardner as the Sipowicz character. Um, he was just gruff. He was rough around the edges. He was always going to kind of push – he was always going to push it to the edge. But you, you knew that he was essentially a good guy and he was the veteran. He had the experience and you liked him because part of you didn't want to like him. Um, and I just – I really enjoyed that book and I liked the way he was depicted during those those issues.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh,
0: anyway, um, before we head out, guys, final thoughts on this story Green Lantern in Secret Origins Issue 7?
2: Go ahead, Chad. Uh, no,
1: no, nothing nothing specific. Uh, just, uh, I think uh, although it's coming at a time after Crisis when things are a, a little less defined and uh, kind of in flux, I think it gets a lot of the details right. Um, and I think it serves as a nice reminder that, you know, as as, as, as Sean, you know, uh, kind of lovingly and humorously recapped the, the, the intro page of the thing, you know, Guy Gardner wasn't always an ass, uh, and it was served as a nice reminder for that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's what I have to take out from the stories. This really humanizes Guy Gardner because at the time he was basically the the butt of everyone's jokes. You know, if he wanted to make fun of someone or deride someone in the DC universe, you'd put Guy Gardner up there, and this. This took an effort to humanize the character and show that he wasn't always the kind of jerk character that he's been written at the current time in the Justice League International.
0: And now I really want to go back and reread the scenes with Hal meeting Guy in a locker room for the first time and imagine that in a different context.
2: You look at those panels and one panel Guy's got a shirt on, next panel Guy's shirtless and sweaty and Hal's looking up at him. (laughs) Yeah, there was there was a more than a bromance going on in in my uh, sort of weird fictionalized imagination, which is very disturbing.
0: Okay. okay, well, this episode is being released at a fortuitous time because it's nearing the end of July and we're coming down on the end of the celebration of Green Lantern's seventy fifth anniversary. Chad, would you like to tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, um, obviously Ryan will be getting into uh, more specifics once he covers the actual origin of Alan Scott, but... uh the, the All American Comics number sixteen was the first appearance of Alan Scott Green Lantern, uh, written by Martin O'Dell. Uh, the cover date of that was uh, July of nineteen forty, which means it probably hit stands about Mayish. So we decided between May and June, uh, July, we'd start with the month of June and go into the month of July towards the end of the month of July, making it a two month long official quote unquote celebration of Green Lantern's seventy fifth anniversary. Uh, this year marks 75 years since the concept of Green Lantern uh, has been around. Um, so, you know when when DC, when the 75th anniversary of Superman and Batman came around, DC made logos. They uh, did these cool animated shorts. I mean, there was a big big to do uh, for the 75th anniversary of those characters and. It doesn't really. It, well, let me let me clarify. At the beginning of this year, it didn't really feel like they were going to do anything about it. Um, the same way they did Superman and Batman, which felt a little cheated. But rather than get mad at DC, we decided we'd take it upon ourselves. It has since come out. Uh, DC has created a logo for the event. They've they've uh, they've actually put out uh, a solicitation of like a hardcover of some of the best green lantern stories. And it's, it's actually titled like a celebration of the 75th anniversary or, or something to that effect. Um, so DC is doing something about it as opposed to originally we thought they weren't going to. So, but regardless, the point remains, the lantern cast wants to team up with basically every single green lantern related website, blog, and podcast on the internet. Uh, and Sean, of course, obviously uh, you, you've, uh, uh, you're welcome to to participate and everything. This is kind of more of a loose. Uh, this is more of an event than a crossover. Uh, it's not like we're trying to get people to specifically, you know, everybody who listens to A, B, and C podcasts or whatever website or whatever. Uh, we're going to get those people to come over to Lantern Casts or anything like that. This is more of everybody who can has uh, and wants to have the ability to celebrate Green Lantern's 75th anniversary can. And it's not just Green Lantern-specific sites. Uh, I've had a couple of other podcasters hear about this and go, well, our podcast does cover Green Lantern-related stuff sometimes or just comics in general. We can do a Green Lantern-specific episode or, or something like that. Uh, and those people are more than welcome to do that. So all we're asking is that you just contact us at the LanternCast, at lanterncast.gmail.com. Let us know what you plan on doing or what you want to do. Uh, We are not in any way trying to direct anybody's content. It's more of, you put your best foot forward. You know, if you uh, if you're a podcaster or a blogger and you've wanted to try a different format or a new type of segment or something like that for a while, this is the time to do that. This is the time to be adventurous and get excited about some new stuff and new directions for your show or whatever. Um, so, you know, cover some stories you've wanted to cover but just haven't had the time to. Like the Lantern Cast, I'll just throw this out there. Uh, Sean actually already covered this uh, recently, as a matter of fact, but I've been really, 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 really wanting to cover the first Ion story on the Lantern cast for a while, and we're going to do that uh, here in the next two months, uh, in the months of June and July, Um, uh, speaking of great Green Lantern stories, um, and we are kind of partnering up with some of the the bigger Green Lantern names. So uh there's a website, The Brightest Day, The Blackest Night. There's a, a blog, Flotos page, um, there's another blog site, Green Bloggers site, and also you've probably heard of this one, blog of OA is teaming up with us as well. Um, so uh contact us, lanterncast at gmail.com, let us know you want to be involved in this thing. I'll shoot you the images. You can also go to our website uh, lanterncast.com and there's actually a post titled Celebrating the 75th Anniversary of Green Lantern that has all of the images on there for you to use as well including the official DC 75th Anniversary logo which mistakenly has Hal Jordan in the image as opposed to Alan Scott but you know, whatever, it's the concept of Green Lantern and all we ask is that as you post to social media, Instagram, Facebook Twitter, uh, I think Google Plus uses hashtags too um, use the hashtag GL. 75th, so GL75TH, uh, and that'll be one of the ways that we can find everything that's going on on the uh, internet in the months of June and July to celebrate the uh, character and concept of uh, of Green Lantern, um, and as a matter of fact, at some point in the next two months, I just thought I'd let you guys know, Martin O'Dell, unfortunately, is no longer with us, but his granddaughter Jackie Nodell is, and the Lantern cast will be speaking with her to... Uh, uh, on, on air in an episode in the upcoming future talking about the history of Green Lantern.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Cool, Whoa. cool. I'll definitely, uh, yeah, I'll definitely direct people to check that one out, because that sounds great. Um, and yeah, when when this episode goes up, I will definitely promote it with the hashtag GL75th. So, sounds good. Nice. Um, Sean, where can people find you online if they're looking for you?
2: Well, for my Green Lantern podcast, I do that over at 2 uh, that is called just one of the guys, a Green Lantern podcast. It's an in- it's essentially an indexing show. I started with uh, Green Lantern Volume Three, uh, did Emerald Dawn One and Two, and right now I'm coming almost to the end of the run. Uh, I think by the time this comes out, I'll probably be around uh, episode one seventy 170 or one seventy one, and uh, we're getting through Ben Rabe, which is been tougher than uh, than I expected it to be. <laughs> But, you, know, you were been, warned. <laughs> yes, I know I was warned, but I, I'm a I'm a completist. I want to try and finish up the show, so, and I can't just skip over it and get to the get back to you know when uh, Ron Mars comes back into the story. So, gotta just push through this. There's only a few more episodes to. To go with it but uh that's where i can primarily found if you want to hear me talk about green lantern i also do a couple other shows over at two true freaks including walking dead wednesday which is a show about the walking dead comics or the tv show i do the vault of startling monster horror tales of terror try and say that three times fast where we cover uh horror movies and horror comics and stuff like that uh i'm also on uh, parallel lines which is a comic or Comic book podcast that's talking about the tangent comics that came out uh, during nineteen ninety seven and ninety eight. Um, I also do a show called Listen to the Prophets with the Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast, and I'm certain there's other shows out there that I do. Oh, Who True Freaks a Doctor Who podcast because God knows there's not enough Doctor Who podcast out there. on the <laughs> internet. All
0: right, well, thank you very much, um, Chad. Any other projects or anything else you need to hype?
1: Uh No, just the LanternCast in general, LanternCast.com. Uh, 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 we're also available on iTunes, and you can stream us on Stitcher. Uh, we have a Facebook and Twitter page. Um, I also run a blog, uh, a couple of blogs, but more notably uh, the Suit of Souls uh, blog, which is actually a blog de- dedicated to Ragman, uh, which is one of my favorite characters. Uh, and he's actually got a, a pretty cool Facebook page uh, out right now being run, run by a friend of mine, Pete. Uh, And I'm also one of the admins of It's uh, Ragman uh, slash uh, DC Comics. You can find us there. Um, And since this is coming out uh, towards the end of July, I wanted to let you guys know, uh, even though the massive event itself is happening in June and July, that was just kind of to give people who aren't uh, Green Lantern specific uh, websites and uh, bloggers and podcasters a window to put those things out in but the entirety of the year should be uh you know should and can uh, feature some cool green lantern related stuff so if this comes out towards the end of july and there are some people out there who want to get involved and want to do something for green lantern 75th just because it's the end of july doesn't mean it's too late
0: absolutely you can you can celebrate green lantern all the time That's right. Just like Ebenezer Scrooge kept Christmas in his heart 365 days of the year, and I keep National Donut Day in my heart 365 days of the year. Unfortunately, Dunkin' Donuts doesn't agree with that, but I'll I'll take my issues to them anyway. All right. Well, guys, thank you very much for being a part of the show. I had a blast talking to you about this. Um, I hope to get you back in the future with some other characters at some point. Um, Chad, thank you very much for being on the show. Sean, thank you very much for being on the show. It was great to have you guys.
2: Very welcome. Thank you.
0: Don't go away, listeners, because we've got another story coming up right after this short break.
2: In Country has re-upped for another tour, and we've been reassigned. Now you can find this complete look at Marvel Comics The Nom on the Two True Freaks Network. So join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country,
3: a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom, every two weeks at
2: twotruefreaks.com. Some sleep, you can't go on like this. I tried counting sheep, but there's
4: one I always miss. Everyone says I'm getting down too low, everyone says you just got.
0: I don't let it go We're back and so is my guest for this segment. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the show's second returning champion, Siskoid. How are you, my friend?
3: <laughs> I'm good. How about you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much for being part of the show again. We, we missed you terribly. Secret Admirers ought to remember Siskoid from episode 5 when we covered the origin of the Crimson Avenger. Well, this time, we're talking about another hat-wearing, gun-toting, pulp-inspired hero from the Golden Age. One of my favorite characters, the Sandman. How did you discover the Sandman?
3: Um, I guess the same way I discovered a lot of these Golden Age heroes from uh, All-Star Squadron uh, and Secret Origins itself. This is where they they lived, basically, under the uh, penmanship of um, Roy Thomas. So this would be one of the first Sandman stories I ever read. Hmm. All-Star Squadron didn't feature the Justice Society members all that much. Yeah, so Sandman didn't feature a whole lot in All-Star Squadron, but obviously this that would have been the first place I'd seen him. Um, but by then, I think he wasn't wearing, I mean, he's, he's had a few costumes over the years, and he wasn't wearing this pulp-inspired getup.
0: Like the Crimson Avenger, he went through his classical superhero phase, um, but I prefer him in the original outfit or the 90s revamped version of the original outfit. Uh, and that's how I discovered him. I first met the character through the comic Sandman Mystery Theater, which was published in the mid-90s to late 90s, um, kind of coinciding with Neil Gaiman's more popular Sandman book. And I think the first issue of Sandman Mystery Theater that I bought off the rack was 37 or 38. I bet it was 38. I think it was Act 2 of the Mist storyline, which featured another uh, classical character from that era, kind of re-brought back. Once I got into that book, I loved it. I loved the art style. I loved that it was a period book, you know, set in the late 30s, early 40s, and really delved into this darker version of characters that I I only kind of knew from a more colorful and vibrant type of uh, storytelling era that was the Golden Age. Um, so I liked when that book came out, it gave me a sense that this was a darker, grittier world, and the Sandman was at the was at the center of that.
3: So. And you got in pretty late. Um, I, I was in, I was into Sandman Mystery Theater from from the first issue, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and of course, I'd seen the character in the um, uh, Mike parabek drawn Justice yes. Society of America series and Last Days of the Justice Society um, before that. So by then, I knew the character fairly well.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's get into the story of the Sandman in Secret Origins, Issue 7. Uh, before that, I already talked about the cover with Chad Bokelman and Sean Engel when we talked about Green Lantern, but do you have any thoughts on this gorgeous cover by Brian Bolland?
3: Obviously, they took uh, Bolland because he had a connection with uh, Green Lantern at this point. Uh, but his his Sandman is just gorgeous. He really The, the whole thing is done all in green. Um, again, because of Green Lantern, but the uh, the Sandman dominates the piece. The Guy Gardner and Hal Jordan are down at, at the bottom, and Sandman is uh, in the background, but like such a, a interesting, mysterious figure mm-hmm. in the bag there. And, I mean, Balin's really thin lines really br- um, bring out the details in the mask, and there's a real moodiness to it.
0: Yeah, it's... It's definitely, that's the word. It's moody. It's a little bit spooky. Um, I've always liked this character's mask, and and especially this, this old you know, kind of vintage version. There's something very insectoid about it, and it, I, I think because of the componi- composition of the image with him kind of looming over Guy and Hal. if I didn't know better, I would look at this cover and just think, okay, the Sandman must be the villain of this story. Right. You know, it's it's going to be about you know them fi- fighting this crazy, you know hat wearing crazy killer with this weird gun.
3: Yeah, and I just now noticed that the um, his collar is very much like that of Guy Gardner on the cover. hmm I guess that's a Brian Bolland <laughs> collar, yeah. uh, but those those are very much the same style. Yeah. Somehow. And, and actually, I, I'm looking through the issue to see if it's the same.
0: And actually, <laughs> beneath that, with like. Clamps on the cape and what looks like a turtleneck underneath, that almost looks like a uh, Phantom Stranger type of outfit.
3: Yeah, yeah, he's very much got Phantom Stranger's body. But no, the, the collar doesn't exist in the uh, interior story. Right. So he doesn't have that, those flaps uh, around his neck. But it's an interesting connection between the characters that Ballins created here.
0: Okay, uh, you ready to get into the story? Let's do it. Okay. The Secret Origin of the Golden Age Sandman also known as The Phantom of the Fair, is written by Roy Thomas with a co-plotting assist from his wife, Dan Thomas. It's penciled by Michael Baer with inks by Steve Montano, letters by David Cody Weiss, and colors by Carl Gafford. Robert Greenberger was the coordinating editor for the series, but Roy Thomas edited his own stories. And first off, we get a nice little splash page of the Sandman. It's a very cool image of him kind of standing in what looks like a cloud of smoke or mist above this really art deco kind of future noir style, like a gate or a building that looks like it could have been inspired by the entrance to the New York World's Fair that is the setting of the story. Uh, We also get three insert panels on this page. One is of the Sandman's more naturally heroic yellow costume. Another is of Wesley Dodd's eventual kid's sidekick, Sandy the Golden Boy. And then there's an image of a lovely blonde woman, which I, I think we both agree has to be Diane Belmont because she's the only really important woman in his life story. But in modern and past stories, I don't think she was ever colored with blonde hair.
3: No, the only blonde woman we see in the story is um, Lee Travis's secretary right. so maybe it's her maybe she's supposed to be the the female lead in this story but she really isn't
0: the story begins on april 30th 1939 and if you weren't already aware of the historical significance of that date the first page makes it clear as the then mayor of new york fiorello LaGuardia, makes a public address for the grand opening of the 1939 new york world's fair During the speech, however, Mayor LaGuardia is attacked by the mysterious and amazing Phantom of the Fair. The Phantom threatens the mayor, beats up some cops, and announces that the World's Fair is officially haunted. In addition to his striking appearance, which consists of a red cape over a black bodysuit that also covers his face, the Phantom also displays superpowers, such as being impervious to bullets and the ability to leap clear over the crowd to make his escape. Grover Whalen, the president and organizer of the fair, recommends closing down, but Mayor LaGuardia scoffs at that notion. LaGuardia recognizes that for all of the Phantom's incredible power, he barely hurt the mayor or the police protection detail. If the Phantom wanted them dead, they'd be dead. LaGuardia reasons that the presence of the Phantom will actually bolster interest and attendance for the fair. I wonder if Roy Thomas was thinking about the movie Jaws when he came up with this idea so fast forward about six weeks to june 9th the front page of the globe leader newspaper announces yet another appearance by the phantom of the fair whom the police have been unable to catch though the phantom hasn't harmed anyone yet the mayor wants security increased because the king and queen of england are set to arrive the very next day also making the front pages the story about the crimson avenger and the yet unclaimed reward for the masked man's identity At a fancy New York nightclub, wealthy playboy Wesley Dodds has dinner with the Globe Leader's publisher, Lee Travis, and his assistant, Sally Stevens. Wes questions Lee's decision to promote the masked mystery men instead of drawing more attention to the rising threat of fascism in Germany, Italy, and Spain. Lee tells his friend that the mystery men sell more papers, but admits that he doesn't think the Crimson is a threat to the public, but rather a do-gooder who, for reasons all his own, feels the need to hide his identity. Well, if you listen to episode 5 of this podcast, or read Secret Origins 5, then you know Lee Travis is, in fact, the Crimson Avenger. And just in case you hadn't, Roy drops a little editorial note in this section to clarify it. Sally asks her boss if he always argued with Wes like this, and we learn that Wes Dodds and Lee Travis have been friends since childhood. They grew up together and then went to rival colleges where they competed against each other in football and in games of romance with the ladies. And it's acknowledged by both parties that Lee Travis was better at sports and womanizing, in part because Wes shunned the limelight. But now, as an adult, Wes is feeling the restlessness of a life without challenges or commitments. He feels like all he's doing is watching the sands of time run out of the hourglass, and he returns to his penthouse with the unshakable urge to do... something... Both Wes and Lee suspect that the Phantom of the Fair might strike at the visiting King and Queen of England the next day, but Wes also wonders if the Crimson and the Phantom aren't somehow working together. Wes decides he'll be at the fair tomorrow to stop the Phantom, but since Wes has always shunned the limelight, as Lee put it, he'll go in a costume of his own. He throws on a green business suit, a purple opera cape, a hat, and an old gas mask he acquired in London. He calls himself the Sandman because he's no longer merely watching the sands of time run out, but rather taking action. And that's where we'll take a break in this story. Your thoughts on the first half of the Sandman's origin? Well, the real
3: star here is the art. I think uh, Mike Baird, didn't become a star himself i don't think he's known as a star artist but his layouts are i think on par with um well today we'd say jh williams iii or in that era we'd um, we'd compare him to uh, george perez yeah. right there are a lot of inset little panels uh, zoom ins that mirror each other uh, it's it's intricate that there's, you know, it's as dense as a Golden Age comic, which are usually pretty dense with a lot of panels on a page. But the layouts are much more inventive,
0: right? It's not just like a typical three by three or three by four. You get, you get a whole lot of more fun, expressionistic take on the panel construction.
3: Yeah, I wonder if uh, Roy Thomas, as editor, uh, encouraged that kind of thing or sought out artists like this to. Somehow modernize stories that were older because um, if you look back at, say, um, uh, your comments on the podcast number three on uh, Shazam on Captain Marvel, uh, the same thing could have been said of uh, Jerry Bingham. So the where the art, the layouts were much more modern than the story itself. So I'm, I'm wondering if uh, Roy Thomas wasn't using talent that you know complemented or um, went against the the old fashioned. Um, way, what was old-fashioned about the story um, so by giving it a modern spin through the art. I, I wonder.
0: I mean, it's possible. He definitely – he packs a lot of story in each page, and I don't know exactly how his script style, how how much detail he put into what he wanted the artists to do in terms of panels. But throughout most of these secret origin stories that he wrote – they're they're pretty dense, and the, the, the artists do put a lot of panels into some of his pages, especially when we get to some of the shorter stories. Maybe he was asking the artists to flesh out these images, create kind of a more modern style. But still, I mean, we don't get a whole lot of splash pages, or we don't get a whole lot of three-panel pages like we do in a lot of modern comics. These are pretty full pages. Yeah. What do you think about Wesley Dodd's decision to become a hero in the story? A masked, or not necessarily a hero, but a masked vigilante?
3: Uh, well, it's, it's like the Crimson Avengers' origin in that it's psychological. I mean, it's, it's very thin as far as why someone would do this. You know, the idea comes from there already being masked vigilantes. So he's, the Crimson Avenger is inspiring him. Um, and uh, he doesn 't realize it, but he 's still competing with his old friend uh, so he doesn 't know it yet but that 's what 's happening here mm-hmm. um, so the decision is it 's odd but then we 've got a uh, you know a millionaire well i don 't know well a millionaire playboy i don 't know about millions in those days, but uh, he 's a rich man who 's trying to you know find his calling, trying to find something to do. So mm-hmm. this is the kind of dilettante stuff that people like Bruce Wayne get up to, but without the, the the basic trauma that's driven some of these more or better known heroes.
0: Right. It does seem to be lacking that real momentous event that would inspire him to action. And I think even, even the Crimson Avenger had that. He, he got the costume just purely for an incidental purpose. He was going to a costume party. But he had that death at the party that inspired him to action, right. I, think, is- I think
3: yeah, Sandman's going to be inspired by his first adventure. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm going to do this. Um, he, he does have a, a, I mean, he does have that that thing about. Uh, the sands of time and i've got to do something with my life before uh, it's too late before i you know which is uh,
0: very very forced bit of dialogue it is in terms of giving him a name if he's not connected to a sleep motif at this point roy was really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of getting
3: the gas gun is still in his future it's it's not part of this um Uh, This first part of the story, Uh, he doesn't have any bad dreams or – which was something that will be established in uh, Sandman and Sandman Mystery Theater uh, in the 90s or late 80s. So it's kind of a – I've got a gas mask, but I don't have a gas gun. (laughs) So so the the elements are are coming together not so organically.
0: Yeah, and you pointed out, and I didn't even think about it, how we do get the foreshadowing – um, set up by Sally, that these two were rivals, that Wes and Lee Travis had this kind of friendly, competitive rivalry. And you're right, like without even knowing it, he is going to be perpetuating that rivalry in the next section of the story. Right. Um, I really like that. Um, a few notes on the New York World's Fair um, in terms of the historical accuracy, because Roy Thomas bent over backwards to make sure that his stories were often as historically accurate as he could get them, or at least threw in, dropped a lot of, uh, of hints of Easter eggs for historical accuracy. Right. The World's Fair did open on April 30th, 1939, and that date coincided with the 150th anniversary of George Washington's first presidential inauguration. Fiorello LaGuardia was mayor of, the, of New York at that time, and he gave a speech dedicating the Plaza of Freedom at the fair. However, the main speech for the grand opening was given by President Roosevelt, and Albert Einstein gave a speech at one of the other exhibits, and the subject of his talk was cosmic rays. So, <laughs>
3: where's uh, Starman? Exactly. I,
0: I wonder why Roy tr- didn't try to include Starman or the Fantastic Four in this, but even as like a subtle nod. But.
3: Well, he, he did. Uh, well, not defense, yeah. so far, but we'll see.
0: We'll see. Right. Um, Grover Whalen was a real person. He was the chief of police of New York for a while before being named head of the Fair's Planning Committee. And the Globe Leader headline includes a mention of New York Governor Lehman pardoning Lucky Luciano and Germany signing a non aggression treaty with Estonia and Latvia. And those were um, fairly contemporary events at the time of this story in terms of the the other major character that pretty much steals the show in the beginning of the story the phantom of the fair debuted in amazing mystery funnies issue 11 or volume 2 issue 7 depending on what numbering you're using and that was cover dated July 1939 but the actual on sale date according to mike's amazing world of comics was June 7th 1939 And the Sandman's first regular appearance was in Adventure Comics issue 40, also cover dated July 1939, but would have been on sale June 15th, so the next week after the Phantom of the Fair. So both characters mostly made their debut within the same month. However, Sandman already appeared in New York World's Fair Comics number one, which came out in April of 39. So, again, similar to how Roy Thomas played with the... uh, uh, War of the Worlds broadcast in terms of the, the cover date with the Crimson Avenger story, he's infusing these same publication dates into this story to tie in these def- these separate characters.
3: Right. The and, Phantom of the Fair is was in Centaur Comics. Mm-hmm. So this is his first DC appearance. Yeah. Basically as this exact character. Right. And he's using the fact that Sandman was in a World's Fair exclusive comic Mm-hmm. To, to set him set his story in at the World's Fair itself.
0: And that same month, when these when these books were coming out, Detective Comics issue twenty nine came out, which included the Crimson Avenger feature. That would have been his tenth appearance and the third appearance of Batman. So, you know, these characters were coming along right at the right at the dawn of the the superhero age, the costumed hero age. Um, any other thoughts on this first part? Only to say that, um, and this is a theme
3: that's going to continue in through the, the back of the story. But the the fact that we're coming off a where there's linking of the Crimson Avenger story with the Sandman story shows that it, Roy Thomas is creating a sort of larger story about the the, the beginning of these mystery men um, by by you know tying them together into the same universe, which. Wasn't actually the case, uh, except in Justice Society stories or in Seven Soldiers of Victory stories. These characters wouldn't really meet up.
0: Yeah, it's it's a very cool. He's he's basically drawing a map. He's drawing the timeline of these characters, and he's, he's not just introducing them according to their chronological first appearance. He is setting them in a shared universe where their their appearances in some case inspire other characters' appearances. Um, So I think that's really, really cool. You ready to move on to section two? Let's do it. All right. Take it away.
3: So George VI and the Queen Mother Elizabeth, not to be confused with Elizabeth II, their daughter, visit the 1939 World's Fair, just as they did on our own Earth Prime history. The difference is that some early superheroes are also in attendance, or at least trying to watch it on the budding medium of television. The Royals' meeting with real-world, voice-activated robot star of the World's Fair, Electro, is of particular interest. Johnny Quick and his sidekick, Tubby Watts, are filming the demonstration. Libby Lawrence and Jonathan Law are separately watching the broadcast. They'll become Liberty Bell and Tarantula in 1941. So are Ted Knight also known as Starman, and Charles McNider, Dr. Midnight. Bob Crane is present, and he's sure he can build a better robot. Be careful what you wish for, Dr. Crane. You'll become the Golden Age Robot Man. (laughs) Johnny Thunder is also in the crowd, and possibly others. And, of course, there's a Sandman there, too, watching from a high up. He spies the Phantom of the Fair, who, as it turns out, is controlling Electro. He commands the big bronze robot to attack the king and queen first slapping a guard away and into johnny quick's face before he can finish reciting the mathematical formula that gives him his super speed powers sandman intercedes knocking electro down and making his television debut at the same time while mayor laguardia and the royals are grateful a trigger happy guard pulls a gun on the sandman and he takes to the upper levels where he finds the crimson avenger Thinking the Crimson is in league with the Phantom, Wesley Dodds fights him, but the Crimson-clad Vigilante's heart doesn't seem to be in it. Wes manages to unmask the Crimson and discovers he's his best friend, Lee Travis. He unmasks, in turn, and they team up. Meanwhile, the Phantom of the Fair is on stage, using his great strength to get Electro up again. The heroes swing down, but get their asses kicked. Wesley Dodds gets his hands on the microphone used to give electro commands and has him raise his right arm on the back of the phantom's head. He then pushes the robot onto the prone phantom and the villain is momentarily trapped underneath. The phantom concedes the first round but escapes. The crimson is also nowhere to be seen though his friend does his best to fix his reputation with the media. Speaking of media, Johnny Quick then wakes up and he missed all the action though his camera didn't. Sandman runs off to, and before leaving the fairgrounds, is gifted a gas gun by the Crimson, who was hiding up a tree. As the story ends, Wesley Dodds muses on the legacy the Phantom of the Fair just left the world, a legacy called the Sandman, as the later leotarded versions of both he and the Crimson, with Psychic's Sandy and wing, wave happily in the sky.
0: So, so many cameos in this story.
3: Yes, well, it seems to be less about Sandman. Uh, because it's not much of an origin, as we said, uh, as it is about the mystery, you know, mystery men in general, and how they were all inspired by the Crimson and the Sandman in some way. Yeah, it's so, kind
0: of about the legacy of this of this event.
3: Yeah, they all see this happening, and uh, it'll be in you know it'll be in their consciousness when they decide to become heroes to take, to put costumes and masks on and. Um, fight the good fight. So these are their inspirations. So he's really creating a continuum and setting it at the World's Fair, where the um, just with the Parisphere in the background, which will become the All Star Squadrons uh, headquarters. So he's, he's tying it all up. And Electro, that robot, mm-hmm. will become Gernsback, their sort of robotic butler uh, at the at the HQ. So he 's tying all of the the Golden Age history up into what he 's doing in All Star Squadron at the time, or had
0: yeah let 's look at some cameo appearances, sure, because we get a number of them first of all, right on page eleven um, on panel three, we just get a kind of speculator just watching the the king and queen arrive. that is intended to be a portrait of Roy Thomas. And I don't know if he included it. I have a feeling it was just contributed by Mike Baer, the artist, because Roy Thomas was a lover of and a collector of World's Fair memorabilia. And I think it was probably a nice little – yeah, maybe Roy Thomas wanted it. But I, I have a feeling it probably came from um, the editor and the artist as a kind of uh, a bit of a show of appreciation to make yeah. Roy Thomas a, a witness, a, a guest at the World's Fair
3: I don't think he was a narcissist <laughs> to the point where, you know, please include me in the crowd. Because if he wanted to be included in the crowd, he might have been, you know, a, a child. Sure, yeah. At, at the time. So yeah. this is uh, this, this is the earth to, <laughs> it's kind of the earth to Roy Thomas.
0: Yeah. Um, on the next page, on page 12, we do get uh, Johnny, well, who will eventually be Johnny Quick um, with Tubby, his right hand man. We get Johnny Thunder, just. Doofus-looking guy in green suit and bow tie. And between them, we get two guys who I believe are the Penguin and Brainwave.
3: That's, um, that's what they look like. And, it, and if you look at right in the back of them, yeah, that, that might be Clark Kent.
0: That sort of looks like Clark Kent, too. Now, yeah. based on the the timeline, that shouldn't be Clark Kent because the, the Golden Age Clark, the Superman no longer exists. Actually, right. the Golden Age Penguin no longer exists, either. Um, Neither of them would have been – that version would have existed anymore.
3: And now I'm wondering if those two villains didn't somehow appear around this time. (laughs) Roy Thomas, you're making us do research.
0: Um, Penguin was one of the first Batman villains. Right. But that would have been around the time of Detective Comics 27. He wasn't that old. Penguin wouldn't have been around yet. Right. And actually – I mean, well, neither would a lot of these other characters. But so anyway, and then, yeah, we get – no, you're yeah.
3: right. Brainw- Brainwave is all the way in All-Star Comics number 15, which was in 1943. So um, so they're, they're undercover here.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, we do get Liberty Bell before she becomes Liberty Bell. We get John Law in his more modern revamped tarantula costume. Not the one that he would have been wearing in the Golden Age.
3: No. He would have, In the Golden Age, he would have been wearing the, basically, basically the same, the same costume.
0: The as the, Aven- as the uh, Crimson Avenger.
3: Uh, no, uh, the other one, the um, the Sandman, the the purple and yellow oh, Sandman yeah, yeah, outfit. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty much, and, and that's why Roy. You're World right. Thomas,
0: he, had the, he had the half mask. That kind of, right. Oh, yeah,
3: it's, it's very similar, and that's why Roy Thomas gave him a new costume that probably doesn't fit the era, though it's it's got a little you know f feel, uh, feeling to it, uh, and then Starman underneath. All of, what all these characters I real I later realized all have in common: uh, Liberty Bell, Tarantula, Starman. Robot Man, uh, Johnny Quick, is that they were all in the prototype for Secret of, uh, for Secret Origins. Mm-hmm. And whenever All Star Squadron did, you know, like a fill-in issue, it was usually a Secret or- a Golden Age Secret Origin, and that's pretty much what, how Roy Thomas started this project before it spun off into its own series. Yep. And all of these characters, uh, or the bigger ones, maybe not Johnny Thunder, but the, the bigger ones, the ones who have lines. All had their own secret origin already. So he's really creating that continuum saying, you know, all those origins we've already told, well, you know, they, here's how they connect yeah. to the, the whole Mystery Men origin.
0: Well, well, some of them, I think, were coming out around this time because, like, a lot of them had their origins told in the last couple of issues of All-Star Squadron before it was canceled. Right. I think. Like, yeah. Star so- Star-Mans was definitely first. Starman was yes, told in All Squadron forty one, and that was kind of that was it was almost like a, a test run. Is can we redo these? Well, I mean, for Starman, his origin hadn't been told, but it was sort of his test of can is there is there a market? Is there a desire to see these old characters brought back? Right, with, but or, after
3: Crisis, yeah. when All Star Squadron basically fell apart as a concept mm-hmm. uh, for for Thomas, anyways, yeah. he started just doing these. You know, these origins that probably didn't fit in the Secret Origins lineup or uh, however he did these, but those same characters all got their origins, you know, post-crisis.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: It's funny, like, I, I was thinking, you know, Roy Thomas had been Marvel's editor-in-chief for a while before he came over to DC. And this feels very much like a Marvel team-up type of story in the second act where you've got the the kind of mistaken identity and the two heroes get together and the first thing they do is fight again it ties into that idea of Wes and Lee being old rivals and meeting again in this, in this instance where they're fighting each other first before they discover each other's identities. It's interesting that once they're both unmasked there's an instant trust like there isn't this wait you've been keeping the secret from me that you're secretly the Crimson Avenger? I thought you were a bad guy in league with this Phantom of the Fair I, I don't know if I can trust you anymore then it's instantly it's like oh I know you well you must be a good guy
3: they're called friends in this, so mm-hmm. probably their history trumps whatever um, shock. The uh, after all, Wesley is also dressed up. <laughs>
0: That's true. You <laughs> know, uh, pot can't call the kettle black at that point.
3: Pretty much. Okay. I think it's um, it's kind of sad that the this is one of the few issues, if not the only issue, where uh, Roy Thomas doesn't get a a text piece. Mm-hmm. You know, usually there's a. Um, Uh, The letters page has a big block of text about the origins of the characters. And sometimes you find what Roy Thomas was um, where he was coming from on a certain origin because he would discuss, you know, his own history with the character. Um, And at the time, that would have been, you know, this is pre-internet. We wouldn't have been able to go to Wikipedia and check on the publication history of something. So um, it's missing here. And I, I... you know, I, I think it's kind of a shame.
0: Let me check and see if it's in issue eight.
3: Oh, oh because yeah. because
0: occasionally they would do that, where if they if he missed a week he would come back and kind of like include yeah. a note. We needed button. too many pages. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Yes, he actually has a write-up for there we go. for the sandman. It's in issue eight. Let me just quickly scan this thing. So this is Roy Thomas's actual uh, notes on the story and where he was coming from. The thematic connection between Sandman and the earlier Crimson Avenger, see Secret Origins number 5, was so strong that I figured West Dodd might have encountered his fellow New Yorker in disguise, Lee Travis, on his very first case, and indeed, might even have come into existence primarily to capture the Crimson. I also discovered that around the time of Sandman's 1939 debut, England's King George VI and Queen Elizabeth made the first state visit ever to the U.S. by British monarchs. The trip was an unqualified success, and one of its highlights was the royal couple's visit to the New York World's Fair, which had recently opened. For more on the villain of this piece, The Phantom of the Fair, see future issues of All-Star Squadron. No room here. Well, that didn't happen. And Roy goes on to say, thus, all of the elements were gathered, including talented penciler Mike Baer, who had formerly drawn under the name Mike Hernandez, and whose Robot Man origin pops up this very month in All-Star Squadron number 63. We just hope you had as good a time with the story as we did. Now on to the background of this issue's Golden Age Crate. So, and then he talks about Doll Man. So, that was from Issue 8, the month after this one came out. Right. So...
3: It answers a couple of questions, mm-hmm. um, and the way yeah, All Star Squadron was still going on to this point, uh, and he was basically using it as you know a dumping ground for more origins mm-hmm. of Golden Age yeah. characters.
0: Yeah, Roy Thomas said that when he created the origin for Starman back in All Star Squadron forty one, he also did two inventory stories: um, one origin of Liberty Bell, and one for the Jay Garrick Flash. And they were basically just, yeah, they were inventory stories. They were just kind of used to float wherever they needed a filler issue. And Liberty Bell's story eventually got told in a later issue of All-Star Squadron, and the Flash's origin was inserted into Secret Origins issue 9. So, yeah, he, ha- he had this idea of of going back and telling all these origins, and most of them were done in Secret Origins or in All-Star Squadron. That's where, like, Robot Man and those guys got their tor- their stories. Right. I think you bring up a good point that this story feels i mean for for an origin of the sandman it 's very crowded with other important figures, um, not just the the cameo appearances but Phantom and Crimson Avenger even the robot they all take up a lot of space and it, it doesn 't feel like it 's really sandman 's origin or that his his origin isn 't very momentous on a personal level. It's more of what this event has to do with the culture and how it will give birth to eventually the justice society characters and the all-star characters. Um, I wonder if Roy Thomas didn't feel like he had a better, more personal idea for the character, or if he just, if he deliberately wanted to use the Sandman as the springboard to kind of boost. This was the, this really was the birth of a new age of heroes.
3: And he kind of needed to probably from his perspective because uh, he'd been just robbed of um, several characters from the Golden Age, mm-hmm. including Superman mm-hmm. uh, post-crisis. And it's, it's well known that you know he was sore about it and he had to create the young all-stars to fill the, the gap and the void left by those characters and that he felt that DC had screwed him. Mm-hmm. Out of um, out of Earth Two and what he could what he was doing there with both All Star Squadron and Infinity Inc. because uh, he'd really corrupted the history of, of Infinity Inc. So I mean, if you're the writer of either of those series, you know you, you might have gotten a raw deal in the crisis. Yeah. So he's making several characters, or he's recreating the a golden age that fits the one universe where. The Golden Age is still important, where the Golden Age is still, uh, you know, a, an important element that will lead to the present day somehow. Uh, but he can't do it th- the old way, where Superman is first and Batman Batman soon after. He, those Those icons, those legends can't exist anymore. So he's creating new legends and he's treating them like legends, like characters that fired up the imagination and created more heroes uh, when in truth, Superman and Batman mostly did that Mm -hmm. both in publication and probably, you know, in universe, if, if we're in the minds of, of people living in the DC universe, um, you know, Superman is a lot more of an inspiration than the Crimson Avenger or Sandman who would be working in the shadows and uh, really pulp heroes, street Mm -hmm. heroes. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's, he's trying to do that. He's like mythologizing the golden age in such a way as to keep its importance in the new DC universe. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And it's then when you've got two figures, two pulp inspired heroes like Crimson Avenger and Sandman, who seem to be more cut from the similar vein of, of Batman of like lurking in the shadows and kind of like striking out of the darkness in order to be that symbol that kind of rallies around and inspires the other heroes you need their you need them to go public you need to capture them in a big spotlight so setting them on camera in the world's fair fighting a giant robot seems like a good way to go public with this this costumed mystery man idea
3: <laughs> definitely
0: i i enjoyed the story i liked it i just the part of me that loves the Sandman really wishes it was more about Sandman, but it's still, I I understand what Roy Thomas was going for. So I I liked it.
3: So did I. I mean, it's a nice piece of, he uses history in an interesting way. Uh, He, you know, it's, it's a little more of a, an all-star squadron kind of story where Mm -hmm. a lot of other characters are referenced, but, um, but the Sandman is still, you know, the star and the, um, uh, the art is interesting Uh, It's too bad that then the Sandman didn't. You know, there was no place for these characters to continue. Right, All-Star Squadron was ending, uh, and so you you might create relationships here, but those relationships can't be really explored later on. We don't have a series where this friendship can continue to exist.
0: Right, right. As I sort of mentioned, kind of um, rambling style in the middle of our story analysis. The Sandman's first published appearance was in New York World's Fair Comics Issue 1, which came out on April 30th, 1939, the opening of the New York World's Fair. That date is according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. That World's Fair comic wasn't exclusive. It was distributed at souvenir shops at the fair, so it might not have had the same mass market uh, distribution as the, the normal pulps and the normal comic books that would have been on on racks and newsstands at the time. However, I do think a lot of people went to the World's Fair. Um, However, even though that was his first published appearance, it is generally believed that that story was not the first written and drawn story featuring the Sandman. His first regular appearance, which was probably the first created adventure of the Sandman, was in Adventure Comics number 40, which had a July 39 cover date. Actual on-sale date would have been June 15th. And that story, um, even though it is credited to Harry Dean, which most of Sandman's Golden Age stories were, the creation credit for the Sandman goes to the artist Bert Christman, although he probably had a lot of help from the writer Gardner Fox and the editor Vincent Sullivan. Um, They worked together a lot, and the Sandman appeared in Adventure Comics issue 40 in 1939 until issue 102 in 1946, which is a pretty solid run. Um, at least the early issues, the early appearances drawn by Chrisman. the writing credits are very loosely attributed. A lot of them, a lot of times, writers didn't get credits. Some are believed to have been written by Gardner Fox. Some were written by Christman himself. Some were written by the editor, Vin Sullivan. After about ten appearances as of Adventure Comics number 50, a new artist came aboard, Craig Flessel, who had a pretty long and distinguished run on the character.
3: The new costume comes in uh, on Adventure Comics number sixty-nine. That's in nineteen forty-one. So um, you know, twenty-nine issues later, three years later, and um, a couple of years later, and this, this time it's by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. He, they started working on the strip and would go on to do other things, I believe. <laughs> uh, the, those
0: oh, guys. Oh, oh, they created the the most famous superhero with a shield, Guardian. The,
3: Guardian, exactly, but also Captain America, and so you know they redid the Sandman as a more, co- or you know, uh, a leotard costume. Yeah, the basic traditional. Yeah, very traditional. Uh, but the, the a lot of those stories, which is how you know Sandman is often remembered, several of those stories were reprinted through the 1970s, and uh, and in particular at the back of. Joe Simon's next Sandman project, which there was a Sandman in the 70s, which was about a kid who dreamed he was a superhero. And, you know, the adventures took place in some kind of dreamland. The covers and the first issue were by Jack Kirby, which so a lot of people associate that Sandman with Jack Kirby, although um, the art quickly uh, degrades Mm -hmm. after that. But um, uh, that was a a short-lived DC implosioned, series. Was that when his uh,
0: costume turned red and yellow? Was that was, that when yep. he had Like the red cape?
3: Right, and had the um, uh, the hourglass on his chest, yeah, yeah. and he had sidekicks which were uh, glob, and anyway, he had like <laughs> monsters as sidekicks. So that whole story was eventually, you know, retconned into um, the whole, the, you know, into Golden Age hero stories as well. We had something to do with Infinity and characters. But um, at the time, There was no relationship except that they did – I've got a few of those issues. They're really cheap in bargain bins. Uh, A lot of those issues have Golden Age Sandman stories by Jack Kirby reprinted at the back. Mm -hmm. That's the only relationship there. Uh, But then, of course, we know the, the Wesley Dodds from much later when DC was embarking on Mature Reader's Labels uh, because even before vertigo, mm-hmm. Sandman started by Neil Gaiman, and in the first issue of Sandman, which was a really striking element, uh, you had a Wesley Dodd you, Neil Gaiman tried to integrate all the Sandman together to mm-hmm. say that wild dream that 's basically the setup for sandman uh, dream, the concept of the, of the dream of the Endless, was captured during the, um, the early part of the 20th century and then there was no one running the dreaming no one was running dreamland during that time and that's why uh, wesley dodds had nightmares that drove him to become a vigilante uh, where that 70s sandman was you know able to enter the dreaming and have adventures because you know no one was there wasn't a captain on the ship kind mm-hmm. of thing and that little bit which is like one panel or two panels or it's, it's not long just including Wesley Dodds in that concept, I think did a lot more for the character than this whole origin issue ever did.
0: Completely agree with that.
3: Yeah. Uh, it gave him a motivation. It it made him, you know, it, it gave him something that other mass heroes didn't have. No, no one else is driven by dreams mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in that way. And it gave him a reason to be the Sandman to, to, you know, to take that sleep motif
0: Right, it's it gives him a kind of obsession, um, especially which is, I think, when you think of the most popular character coming out of like the '80s and '90s, when you think of how popular Batman became in that era, we think of Batman as this obsessive, paranoid creature, and I think giving uh, giving Wesley Dodds these dreams, kind of probably tapped into that that mindset, that zeitgeist, and I think helped propel him into a greater popularity. And you're right. It is more legitimate. It is a more interesting motivation and in history than the Roy Thomas's story.
3: And that would lead to your one of your favorite series of all time.
0: It is Sandman Mystery Theater. I'm not. I'm not prepared to say it's my favorite all-time comic, but. It's it's definitely up there, and part of that is the the consistency. It came out under DC's Vertigo imprint. The series ran for 70 issues from 1993 until the end of 1998. Even though the last two issues had 1999 cover dates, um, and yes, that is one of my all-time favorite comic book series. I'm not prepared to say that it is my favorite. Um, just I I would have to do a lot more thinking and a lot more note-taking and studying and analysis, and I'm not prepared to do that. But for sheer consistency from start to finish, um, I love that book. And part of it was it had the same writer or creative team on the book. Matt Wagner started on the book. He was eventually joined by Steve Siegel, and then Guy Davis was – the artist for most of the series and certainly kind of the, the art director when he wasn't working on issues, he kind of set the pace. He kind of created the visual style that other artists would come in and kind of um, replicate. And yeah, well, like I, like I said up front, I I discovered the series sort of in on the second half but I quickly went back and started looking up all the all the older issues that I could. And in the mid and late '90s, when I wasn't reading a whole lot of DC or Marvel books, I was still reading that series. Most of it has been collected in trade paperback. I think all of it is now available digitally on sites like Comixology. Um, but yeah, I, I love that deep, dark look at um, at the world of of the Golden Age, which was anything but golden in that story. It was much moodier, much more atmospheric, like the cover of the story by Brian Bolland. And then picking up the character's history in modern times, like after uh, Sandman Mystery Theater stopped being published, I think the character Wesley Dodds next appeared in JSA issue one in early 1999 or mid 1999. And that was where we saw the character die. And by then, he was an aged man. Um, He was a widower, or sort of. He'd survived Diane Belmont, his love, who died of cancer or natural causes. Um, And in that first issue of JSA, it's his death that brings all these characters back together. Um, But he didn't die of old ages. He, He died heroically, trying to prevent Mordrew from stopping the resurrection of Dr. Fate. So... It was, it was nice that he had a full arc. He is one of those few heroes that we have seen have a full-life arc.
3: Yeah. So in, I didn't read those JSA issues, but I guess in a way he serves the same purpose all over again that he does in The Secret Origins.
0: Yeah, I, I hadn't even thought of that until I was saying it and you mentioned it. But yeah, it's, it is his, his death does spark this, this second age of the Justice Society because they all come together from his funeral – and he he did, I mean, it, it wasn't a glamorous death. He killed himself. Uh, he committed suicide, but he did it to prevent Mordrew from basically prying information out of his mind.
3: Wow. Um, the one thing that, uh, if, if we go back to the original uh, stories in the 40s, just because I'm kind of, I, I don't miss it from the, um, it's not something I miss from Mr. Theater, but I did miss it from, uh, the, the Secret Origins issue itself, where there's this really weird bit in those very early stories where um, it's part of the sleep motif. Sandman leaves a little doll of himself mm-hmm. sleeping in the bed before he, he leaves to, to to fight crime. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, in those stories, he's kind of a nut job. <laughs> when you, it's a very strange thing to do, but... I do wish that Roy Thomas had, um, I'm sure he'd seen those stories. I'm sure he, I mean, he he did none of this without doing extensive research in DC's archives. Uh, So I'm kind of, you know, why wouldn't he use that element in the story? And to my mind, it's something that could have spawned a whole different origin. I mean, that one little strange psychological quirk could have been the basis for the story.
0: I know, and we don't I mean even in those the golden Age stories we do I mean like West Dodds had a butler named Humphreys who was a recurring character um, yeah, he had that that crazy little gimmick of leaving yeah it, it's it's not like a, a voodoo doll, but it's this weird sort of shamanistic totem of himself that's in the bed. I don't know. That, that seems so prime for a, a much more deeper psychological exploration. Yeah. And Thomas went the complete opposite direction.
3: And uh, they didn't use it in mystery theater, but um, it did have the same feeling or the same mood of a you know, a tortured person, someone who uh, has a psychological problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so
0: well, the doll. He uses the doll in Mystery Theater. Oh, does he? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a recurring thing. It's still visual. In fact, it's one of the, it's one of the tip offs that how Diane Belmont eventually discovers that Wes is the Sandman. I the haven't thing, read I it in too long. Yeah, she sees it and she she makes a weird connection. She's like, this is a really weird looking thing, and she kind of like she's like, it almost looks like the mask and the hat. So,
3: <laughs> oh man, it's so strange. It's so strange. But, yeah, so it, Roy Thomas kind of missed the boat for me there. Yeah. But later writers didn't, so that's nice.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, like, like I said, this... Uh, Sandman is one of my favorite DC heroes, and I think he still would be even if I never read a Sandman story. And it's all because of the look of the character, and specifically the the Mystery Man look whether it's the classic version with the opera cape and the more stylized blue and yellow mask, or it's the mystery theater version which has uh, an obvious like World War One era mask and a trench coat, which either one, I, I just I love the feeling of that because it has this classic crime noir element that I love. But the mask also has this weird bit of horror. Like, this kind of in, insectoid, alien, Lovecraftian bit of horror. And the way that those two things meld. It just, the, it just yeah, just the look of that character. I can never get over it. If I never read a Sandman story, I would just, i I love this guy. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I just, I reject other versions of the story. Even, like, I'm a huge Jack Kirby fan. And I don't, I have z- be less than zero interest in reading those other versions of Sandman. Where he's where he's worked on the co- character with a classic costume, either in you know whatever era, the the yellow and purple costume or the yellow and red. I just right. I don't, that's not the same guy to me. That's not the character. I don't that that doesn't appeal to me. This is the Sandman that I like. Um, and his 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 Golden Age adventures. You can get them. It's in the archive editions. Golden Age Sandman. They're I mean they're they're fun. It's like a lot of these stories uh, They're Pretty repetitive they follow a basic formula um, but they're good Christman's art is really cool I like Craig Flessel's art when he takes over the book about halfway through he he had a, a little bit more of a polished style but there's also this he does a lot more with like lines and shading that reminds me of what guy Davis did in the in mystery theater
3: right and but it's in mystery theater where they really pushed it Mm-hmm. You know, pushed the concept to its extreme, where uh, it was a dark pulp hero story. Uh, he had a um, you know a, he had the gal pal, which is a, a an archetype from those kinds of stories. Diane Belmont was one of the better characters.
0: Yeah, and she was more than. I mean, she was. I mean, it, it, she was noteworthy in like the Golden Age for being a pretty worthy gal pal. She wasn't just the sidekick. She wasn't the damsel in distress. And again, I think it's stupid that they replaced her with another Robin ripoff. Yeah. Um, But in, in mystery theater, she is, I mean, in some of the stories, she is the main character. It's her adventure. And she is going out and, and solving these adventures at the same time that Sandman is investigating. And it's, she was, she was a really good, she was the breakout character of that book.
3: Yeah, definitely, and I and I like how Wesley is. You know, just this really this ordinary guy. He's mm-hmm. he's got a you know a bit of a, a bit of a pot belly. He's out of shape. He's he's got <laughs> you know he's wearing glasses. His, his, his hair is kind of gray. So yeah, he seems older. Um, that yeah, it's the, like it's
0: it, like thinning. Yeah. You can imagine like give him you know give him five ten years and he'll be bald. And it's just like this frumpy looking guy, and it's like yeah, but that's a great hero. Yeah. <laughs> Just
3: the, the accountant. Yes, <laughs> the accountant driven to, to, you know, to justice by, you know, something out of his control. Because it's not like Batman, where it's the trauma, a trauma, a well-known trauma. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's coming to him from outside. Mm-hmm. He's, the 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 impulse is being beamed into his brain by, you know, events occurring on another plane. Mm-hmm. So he has no control over it, and. So, so, it's all a very, and I mean, the series just you know hit it out of the park all the way through. I don't think there's a bad story arc in there.
0: Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is, the secret origin of Sandman in in Secret Origins issue seven is one of the worst Sandman stories that I've read. Yeah,
3: it's a good story. <laughs> it's
0: a good story. It's a good
3: comic. It's just, it's just it's not, not a, the best. It's, yeah.
0: it's, it's not. I don't think it. I don't think if I don't think it's an accurate representation of the character or his best his best works, but okay. still a fun story uh, so if
3: you were to recommend something um, it, it would be from mr theater, i suppose
0: yeah i mean if, if you like if you like the pulp type of stories, he does have the, uh, the archive edition, which is solid, but I highly recommend the uh, same in Mystery theater. Um it's a vertigo book so it's it's more of a, a mature imprint um the language the content there it, it's it's a much more cerebral and sexually charged perverse type of story you get into a lot of dark avenues of human nature um which it's was kind, really of a, kind of a it's kind of a
3: pre a pre war true detective
0: very much so. Yeah, it's, it's and I think that, that feeling. And, right, and part of it because I was coming into it as a as a teenager, it it struck the chord with me at a time when I was just I was very cynical and into that type of dark storytelling. So, yeah, it, it resonated with me so much so. In fact, that um, about a year ago, I created a fan blog for the character. It's called The Sandman Slept Here. You can find it at Sandmanfan.blogspot.com. And I started reviewing issues of Sandman Mystery Theater. Now, I only got up to about the first 20 issues, and then I got too busy to keep updating it. But hopefully if I ever stop podcasting, I'll go back and I'll finish that up because I'd like to tell the whole series and then get into some of the the Golden Age stories too.
3: Yeah, And if people are looking to tie in specifically with this podcast, this issue of Secret Origins, I think um, in the Collected Works, Volume 7 is uh, c- collects two stories. The first one you ever read, The Mist, mm-hmm. and fa- The Phantom of the Fair, which is a uh, version – not a version of this story really, but features a version of this antagonist. Yeah, um,
0: And I think Crimson Avenger appears in that story arc, although I don't know if they ever meet –
3: there is a Crimson Avenger story arc, isn't there? Like, uh, yeah. comes I, later. But, um, yeah, so to say,
0: the, I want to say Crimson Avenger makes an appearance in that same story arc, but I don't think he and Sandman have an encounter in that story. I could be wrong, but...
3: You'll just have to check it out, people. Yeah. I, and you won't be sorry.
0: No. Good, good stuff. Good stuff. So, uh, any other notes on the Sandman? That's it for me. All right. Well, Ciscoids, thank you very, very much for being part of the show again. And where can our listeners find you?
3: As usual, Ciscoids' blog of geekery where I discuss sci-fi TV and comic books mostly, but you know anything geekery related. It's at um, ciscoid.blogspot.ca or .com, whichever. Uh, or you can just type in Ciscoid in Google. I'm the only one.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, man. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Hey, Secret Admirers. I've got a question for you that Siskoid and I were unable to answer during our recording. Did the Phantom, or Phantom Man, or whatever, ever appear after this story? Did he appear in All-Star Squadron, Infinity Incorporated, or Young All-Stars? Roy Thomas said that the Phantom's story would be explained later. I don't think that story was ever told, but Siskoid seemed to think it was. Neither of us were very certain. We spent a couple minutes looking online, minutes that I generously deleted from this episode so that you didn't have to listen to us say, um, and uh, and it says, uh, with lots of silence in between. So, since we failed to resolve the issue, I put it to my wonderful audience. Riddle me this, did the Phantom of the Fair ever appear after the story, not counting Sandman Mystery Theater? And if he did, where? Where? Okay, on to listener feedback. The last episode received 39 comments on the WordPress page, and I'm not going to even come close to reading them all here, although I do always encourage my listeners to check out secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com and take part in the discussion, or at least eavesdrop on it. Much of the conversation focused on people sharing their Batman fandom and their origin stories with the character, and their appreciation for certain creators, like Norm Brayfogle, Alan Davis, Marshall Rogers, Don Newton, pretty much every big-name artist who worked on the character in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And what's great is that DC has been releasing collections of these creative runs in hardcover, either as Legends of the Dark Knight or Tales of the Batman by, insert artist's name. You should definitely check those out if you haven't already. Um, But the Batman appreciation wasn't limited to the comics. A lot of shout-outs were given to other media, like the Tim Burton film, the Adam West show, the animated series especially, and the Filmation cartoons. On the episode, Chris Franklin and I quoted the Irredeemable Shag as saying, Everyone goes through a Batman phase. Well, Shag popped into the comments section to clarify that statement. Yes, I have said on many occasions that everyone goes through a Batman phase, and I stand by that statement. Most comic fans at some point find themselves loving the character of Batman. The incarnation of the character may change, but most comic fans eventually find some version of Batman that they really connect with. Many of those fans later move on and fall in love with other characters. They don't necessarily dislike Batman from then on. They simply are into other characters more. I think more people move on to other characters than those that stay committed to Batman through the years and creative changes. Hence, everyone goes through a Batman phase. Well, Ange disagreed with Shag's statement, though, saying that while he would occasionally pick up issues of Batman's team up and The Brave and the Bold, he was never all in on Bruce, and Siskoid also mentions liking Dick Grayson, Tim Drake, and Barbara Gordon better than the Bat. First-time commenter Michael Kiaroscuro said, I was turned onto your podcast after hearing Rob and Shag plug it on the Fire and Water podcast a while back. I've been catching up on all the episodes, but had to jump ahead to this one for two reasons. I, too, love this Marshall Rogers-drawn Golden Age Batman origin, and I have an irrational love for anything from the original Batman and the Outsider series, including Halo. Yeah, Halo did not get a lot of love or even attention in the comments section. Cisco had popped it up to show his utter disdain for the Outsiders, but in general, I think we all enjoyed hearing Luke talk about them because of his obvious passion for the series. Michael said that he discovered this show because of the Fire and Water podcast hosted by Rob and Shag. According to podcast law, I must now grant them each three wishes. Nathaniel Wayne, who you all just loved hearing talk about Captain Marvel on episode 3, uh, basically doubled down on his frustration with Roy Thomas's copy-paste job on some of these origins. Man, wait till you hear about the Golden Age Flash's origin from issue 9. But Nathaniel agreed with our take on Batman the Animated Series. He said, best Batman, best Joker, best distillation of all the elements of Batman over the years into a single cohesive vision that's aged better than any other comic-based co- animated show of the time. That is to say, It hasn't aged at all Then Diablo Frank popped in a couple of times To hate on What felt kind of like everything And even though I'm not quoting anything directly here We also got some really nice comments On the site from Mark Sweeney Jeff Nettleton, Chris Franklin, and Luke Giaconetti All talking about or sharing Their appreciation for Batman Halo, the New Teen Titans The X-Men, or the Phantom Strangely Not Phantom Stranger Whatever Episode 6 also received Twitter favorites, retweets, and comments from Ange, Greg Arugio, Kyle Benning, Luke Giaconetti, Mark Sweeney, Michael Bailey, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Too Dangerous for a Girl, and Trekker Talk. Sean Merrick posted a comment on the Facebook page saying, This is a fantastic idea for a podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Sean. And Van Z called episode six damn fine podcasting. And Rob Kelly quoted my snarky hipster asking, Have you ever even heard of the Afghan wigs? Rob liked that. Thank you very much. Other Facebook likes came from Chris Ivey, Gautman Shioran, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Barr, Luke Dobb, Max Romero, the Pulp to Pixel podcast, Sean Merrick, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Terry Wood, Tim Wallace, and Van Z. And that's all for this episode. Once again, I want to thank my guests, Chad Bokelman, Sean Ingle, and Siskoid. Feedback for this show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or at BlackCanaryFan or the username CountDroncula. Also, if you want to send a private feedback for the show that you don't want to post on the Facebook or WordPress pages for whatever reason, you can send me an email at blackcanaryfan, all one word, at gmail.com. The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended.
2: perhaps, but with great happiness, a fact, I hereby dedicate the World's Fair, the New York World's Fair of 1939, and I declare it open to all mankind.